Nearly a decade ago, I found myself filling the hours by listening to podcasts while my husband, Brooks, was training with the U.S. Army. Walking the streets of our Army post, I dreamt of creating something for women that bridged that gap between sermon audio and small talk. It was on the floor of my tiny closet on post that that very dream, the Dream for the Journey Women podcast, came to fruition in June of 2017. And today, by God's grace, Journey Women is now a not-for-profit ministry with the aim of moving women to know and love God more. Our monthly and one-time givers help make our mission possible. If you'd like to support the work that we do, you can make a tax-deductible donation by visiting journeywomen.org forward slash give. Thank you for investing in the work of Journey Women. Welcome to the Journey Women podcast. I'm your host, Hunter Beatless. Life's a journey we were never meant to walk alone. We all need friends along the way. On the Journey Women podcast, we'll chat with mentors about gracefully navigating the seasons and challenges we'll face on our journeys to glorify God. One of the challenges I think we all face on this side of heaven is relational brokenness. So today, we're continuing our series, Walking Alongside One Another In, with a conversation on the topic of relational brokenness with Alistair Groves. Alistair serves as the Executive Director of the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation, otherwise known as CCEF. He also serves as a faculty member and counselor at CCEF. Alistair holds an MDiv with a counseling emphasis from Westminster Theological Seminary, He was the co-founder of a biblical counseling center in northern New England, where he served as the executive director for 10 years. In short, he is the perfect person to learn from on this topic. Also, I want to let you know that we breached the topic of abuse in this episode. I will warn you prior to that part of the interview in case you want to skip that portion or revisit it when the time is right. Alistair Groves, welcome to the Journey Women podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This is a real treat. Well, we go to church here in Hanover, New Hampshire together. Uh, You are a husband, a dad, a counselor, an author. You do so many things. Uh, But can you tell us a little bit about what your day-to-day looks like and what your official title is? Sure. So, uh, my well, my official title has actually changed in the last uh, six to eight months. Uh, what is it, August? So, yeah. So, I'm now the executive director of CCF, which is headquartered in Philadelphia. Um, I launched CCF New England, a satellite office of CCF uh, in 2010 with my wife and uh, Robin Huck. And we've grown that little office a bit. And it's been really sweet to see that thing thrive and grow. But, yeah, I've, I've now become the executive director at uh, the Christian Counseling and Educational Found- Foundation in Philadelphia. For those who aren't familiar with the ministry of CCEF, can you kind of give us a nutshell of what you do? Yeah, sure. So our mission statement, our, our tagline is restoring Christ to counseling and counseling to the church. That's been the mission for 50 years. It's just thinking about how do we how do we understand how the scriptures walk into the deepest, hardest, darkest, most complex human problems and and come with hope and, and with something to say and with words for every person in, in every situation. So the desire is that it would be radically church-focused, church-driven, church-centric, and that it would be the content of it would be what we're trying to ultimately do is, is connect people to Christ, recognizing that uh, at the end of the day, hope in your struggles is not, it's not ultimately knowledge, it's ultimately a person, and knowledge connects us to that person. Mm, Amen and amen. Well, one of the hardest things that I have personally interfaced with and maybe one of the places where I have had to really come to the acknowledgement that like this world is not as it should be is in the context of relationships. Relational brokenness is what I wanted to talk about with you today. I know many of the listeners are interfacing with various types of relational brokenness in their own lives. It always surprises me, though, Alistair, like when I come up against something in my life, like in a relationship and we are experiencing friction, why do we seem to be so surprised, particularly in relationships with other believers, when we interface with relational brokenness, mm. even though we know we live in a world that's fallen? That's a really interesting question. And I'll tell you where my thinking has gone on it a little bit here, but I'd be welcome to, to hear your pushback or, or other thoughts. My gut is that it's a couple of things. 
the first is probably the most basic and obvious, which is that obviously we're all sinners. And on some level, you never get used to the actual ugly reality of sin. And so when sin is what's uh, at the heart of a particular piece of relational brokenness, it is going to surprise us just as it surprises us when we stub our toe or when our car breaks down, you know, those things we know happen in principle, but it's still, there's something about the visceral experience of it that is going to catch us off guard. I think there's a second piece to it too, though, that that is significant. And I'm thinking about Proverbs 21-2 or Proverbs 16-2, which basically say the same thing, which is something to the effect of all the purposes of a man's heart or a person's heart seem right to that person, but the Lord knows or judges the spirit or, or judges the heart. And I've, I've thought a ton about this in the past few years, how if you drill deep enough, every single person in every single situation, they are doing things that make sense to them. Everyone's internal world makes sense. Now, it, you may be sitting there feeling totally confused. Why did I do that? That was the stupidest thing I wish I hadn't done that I hate myself for doing it. So it's not like we always understand exactly what we're thinking and why we're doing it. But if you drill down hard enough, we do the things we want to do. We do the things that make sense to us. And so at some level, because A, we are truly different, which is, that's a, a blessing of God giving us a variety of different personalities and upbringings and thoughts and wirings, but also the fact that we are sinners and we tend to think our way is best and we tend to judge rather than just appreciating difference or desiring to help someone who maybe hasn't got as much advancement as we do in a given area or whatever. I think there's a way in which, yeah, part of being a sinner is just being so intuitively under the impression that your way is right and your way mm. is good and anyone else who does anything in a different way must be wrong and crazy, you know? So I think whenever relational brokenness is swirling around a place where I see it this way and you see it that way, and I look at you and I go, why would you ever think that? So there's a, there's always going to be a shock to that. For other people to cause conflict with me, it must mean that they can't see the obvious thing that is clearly right to me, and that's going to then lead to, yeah, me being caught off guard. So I, I'm sure it's more than, than that that shocks us, but those are my two orienting categories. Man, I think that's super helpful. I thought it was really helpful when you went through in your book, just kind of the mixed nature of what we're dealing with when it comes to our emotions and our experience of the world, our experience of relationships, and then walking through just the mixed reality of that and trying to do that with humility and trying to do that really before the Lord, honestly, like as an act of trust and worship to the Lord. And that's been such a challenge to me. I'm curious if some of the listeners are just unable to really attach this to what they're experiencing in their day-to-day -day lives. And I'd love for you to just offer some examples of relational brokenness because it doesn't necessarily have to be as dramatic as like divorce or some of the kind of typical things that we think of when we hear relational brokenness. Are there some examples that you can offer us? Oh, I suppose I could scrounge up one or two. <laughs> it's another interesting question of are there even broad categories? I, I certainly don't have an exhaustive list. I don't think I even have a comprehensive list, but let me give you a couple of things that jump out to me. I think when most people think about relational brokenness or hear that term, certainly it's true for me, the first place my mind goes is to anger and conflict. And I thought it was helpful to actually step back and recognize that anger in and of itself or the presence of conflict in and of itself does not actually necessarily mean there's relational brokenness, at least not in a you know capital R, capital B level situation. So anger can be very intense and it can actually be an extremely good sign about the care that someone has for a relationship. So let me give an example here. You know, probably parenting is maybe the easiest place to go. The fact that when child A hits child B and, you know, it's just this wicked, selfish thing that the child A has just done, and you respond with anger, it's on behalf of child B, who's just been treated unjustly, and it's also on behalf of child A, whom you love and whom you do not want to become somebody who grows up to be someone who just lashes out and destroys and so on and so forth, or you take it further down the road. You know, your kid is getting into drugs and you just, you see their friends pulling them into it. You feel a deep anger against all the forces pulling them into this path that you know leads to, to death. And so anger is in one sense always going to at least give a taste of relational brokenness because even when it's deeply invested in the good of the person you are angry with, there's a certain level of brokenness there. But anger can be wielded redemptively, right? And so now, as soon as we start to attack the person we are angry with, as soon as we start to sin against them, return evil for evil, as soon as we make, you know, 
I want to be comfortable and you're making me uncomfortable by hitting that other child. And now I'm being dragged away from what I was doing to deal with you or whatever. It's very quick that anger goes selfish and sinful in, in my response, but anger fundamentally it's an expression of love. I love someone or something and therefore my anger gets aroused around it. Now, there's also a, a kind of anger, and I was beginning to allude to this just now, that that's really actually more, it is about me, it's not about the relationship. You know, if you look at abusive situations, physical, verbal, emotional, any, any kind of, of abuse, the abuser may have an extreme desire to be connected to that person. You know, I, I need you around me. But it, it is not a love for that person. It's a love for the abuser's own self. It's I want what I want in my world and my control in my way. And you're sort of a piece of making me feel good about my world and my life. And so there you see anger that's just utterly hideous and, and evil and ugly. So I wanted to, I guess, start by launching and say, I, I think Wherever you see anger, you see an enormous danger of relational brokenness. But I want to distinguish between anger that you'd look at, and if you drill into it, you're going to go, what that anger is telling me is that I love myself, and you're making me uncomfortable or unhappy, and you're in my way, versus I love you, and my anger is against the thing that is bad for you and destroying you, or against even our relationship. You're you know, your pornography habit is destroying our marriage. There's an anger against this evil thing that is driving a wedge into something that I treasure deeply and, and, and well should. So that would be one big category I would put on the table. I'll go much more quickly through a couple of others and, uh, and then feel free to, again, just expand these or, or go anywhere you want with it. But guilt and a sense of obligation and people-pleasing is another huge category of relational brokenness. And I raise that one because often it won't look like relational brokenness, but it will be a relational brokenness because it, if you're operating out of guilt, obligation, and people-pleasing, you're fundamentally living at best in a sort of peaceful surfacey realm that does not actually lead to real relational wholeness between two people. It kills intimacy, even if it preserves civility. And then you've got all the sort of difficulties of, okay, we some really hard thing has happened between us. Mm -hmm. How do we work through restoration, forgiveness, reconciliation, repentance, grace? Just, there's a whole mess of stuff there where it may not be that either of us is actively doing anything against the other. We may both even desire to walk forward well together, but bad hurt has been done. How, how are we going to navigate that? And then the last one I, I was thinking about is just the brokenness of, of loneliness. It's I may be in some level of relationship or I may, I may not be in a relationship at all or, or I may even be in the midst of a crowd of people in a sea of acquaintances, but, but I feel this deep loneliness and isolation in the midst of others. And I, I would describe that as a kind of relational brokenness as well. The thoughts or places you would expand, I'm, like I said, I don't think that's comprehensive. I feel like, at least in my own life, you see the brokenness, like you can see the effects of it, right? And I think tracing it back to kind of the root, like you said, like how might we begin to kind of examine maybe a relationship where we know there's friction, we know there's brokenness because maybe we feel resentment when we are spending time with them, or maybe we have no relationship, like our relationship cannot even continue because it's experienced that degree of brokenness. How do we kind of take that and go back and maybe determine which category we fall into that you mentioned. Hmm. We're not just saying like, oh, I felt hurt by that, but you're talking relational brokenness is sort of the category you're experiencing or, or thinking in. In the overwhelming majority of cases, it's going to be an extremely complicated situation. It's going to be probably drawing from a number of different categories, and there's going to be 80 different events that all led down the snowball to where we are today, and, and some good events that drew us closer, and then it hurt all the more that things got broken after that. And so I don't necessarily know that tracing it back to a specific, you know, I need to know the key category. It's more of just, I guess I would almost say the more categories you can think in, probably the better time you'll have being able to respond to any of the pieces of it. Yeah, especially when you're in, in the situation you're talking about. Okay, I can really see the brokenness here. I feel it. It's obvious to me. I'm assuming it's obvious to the other person. How do I even begin to think about approaching that situation before I even think about what actions I might take? There, I would just say, I think that the key the fundamental categories are to say, okay, given that I'm a sinner, there's probably some stuff I'm going to need to repent of. And given that the other person is a sinner, there's probably some things I'm going to need to forgive here. And so trying to identify just what is it that I feel most hurt by? Where am I most wounded? I'm gonna have to work through that. Okay. Is that me misunderstanding the other person? Or is that they just 
out and out hurt me and I'm going to have to begin the process of forgiving and entrusting that to the Lord. And where have I contributed things? You know, where, where am I bringing something to the table here that is making things worse, launched the whole process and so on and so forth. So I'd say if you're thinking in terms of repentance and forgiveness, mm-hmm. you'll probably have lots to work with if, if you let these categories that I was just mentioning begin to help you think about which arenas you might need to, to process. Life is crazy sometimes, and finding time to sit down and read the Bible can be difficult. That is why I love Dwell. When I can't find time to read the Bible, I can listen to it. The voices reading the Bible are soothing. They're not your normal narrators. Plus, you can choose calming background music and adjust the pace of the narrator's voice to get things just right. Dwell's newest release is called Dwell Daily, a fresh, thoughtfully crafted devotional that immerses you in the Word, allowing you to pray it, meditate on it, and so much more. If you're looking to deepen your engagement with the Bible this year, Dwell Daily is worth checking out. I cannot recommend Dwell enough to help you orient your mind to the life-giving Word of God throughout your day. Go to dwellbible.com forward slash journeywomen to receive your 25% discount today. Again, that's dwellbible.com forward slash journeywomen for your 25% discount to subscribe and spend time in God's Word. So if we were to create kind of like a practical how-to, say you have like this relationship that you're like, man, I want to seek reconciliation. And we know we're called to seek reconciliation, right? As believers. I mean, what what are we called to, Alistair? And what are some <laughs> practical steps uh, in moving forward? Yeah. Well, uh, you're absolutely right. We are, we are called to restoration of relationship. And... That simple sounding phrase covers a whole lot of territory in terms of what that looks like. One distinction I found really helpful, and I've heard different people use different words, and so I I do not want to get locked into particular vocabulary on this. Everyone I've heard, whom I've appreciated and respected at least, gives two different things, two different categories. And I give those two categories as forgiveness and reconciliation. And the idea is on the forgiveness side, what I'm trying to get at is the idea of there's this attitude of the heart that says, I need to be willing to let go of whatever it is I hold against you. I'm paying the debt. I am not uh, exacting vengeance and retribution. I'm not returning evil for evil. My, My heart toward you is one that is willing to release you from the debt that you've incurred by what you've done to me. Hmm. And then reconciliation is then a, that's actually a relational process of how can we take where we are and make it better, closer, more intimate, more restored, more redeemed? And I would say forgiveness is a process you can do completely on your own. You can sit in your room. If that person dies, if you never see them again, if they hate you and are completely unwilling and they don't see it, that they've done anything wrong at all and they cut you off, like you can still forgive that person from your heart. Um, Whereas reconciliation demands a two-way street. You have to be able to actually have some sort of transaction and work together and they have to be willing to reconcile. And if they're not willing to reconcile, you're stuck and you have an unreconciled relationship, even if you've forgiven the other person. No. Mm -hmm. There are folks out there who would say, actually, forgiveness is that transaction you can't forgive without the other person coming and and repenting and asking for your forgiveness. But even when someone would argue that for the word forgive, they'll still say there's this kind of underlying attitude of I need to be willing to forgive if they come to me. Um, And I need to, and then if they do come to me, you know, to begin to walk it out in in some sort of restorative process is going to be important. So I use the words forgiveness and reconciliation. Different Mm -hmm. people use different terms for, for both of those, but almost everybody seems to have two different categories, a heart category, and then a sort of relational restoration category. Happy to say more about any and all of that, but those would be the two you you have to be thinking those both of those categories if you're going to get anything practical moving forward. Mm. How do we forgive? <laughs> like, what is it that enables us to walk forward in forgiveness? You just have to try hard enough. No, just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, that obviously at the core of what enables us is Christ's forgiving us. It, it's that Matthew 18 
math. It's that dynamic of, okay, you've got this unmerciful servant parable, right? He, he goes and the king forgives him billions of dollars. I mean, the kind of debt you couldn't rack up with 10 credit cards in Vegas for a month. I mean, I don't even know how he spent all this and got that far behind on his debt, right? And he gets forgiven this just literally unimaginably large amount. And then his fellow servant comes and his fellow servant owes him. And here's where the, the number gets important. I've heard this passage taught two ways. So the second servant owes the first servant 100 denarii. And I've heard that taught as sort of like, you know, it was in pocket change, you know, 25 cents or 20 bucks or something like that. Well, a denarius was one day's wages for a day laborer in that time and culture. So figure, you know, 100 days, that's upwards of half of a working year. You can figure different numbers depending on where you work and what kind of job you've got. And that, that's probably something like 20 grand that the second servant owes the first servant in today's money if we're thinking about. It. Now, if you're working a normal nine to five and someone owes you 20 grand, that is a massive, massive amount of money. That is a huge debt the second servant owes. You can understand why the first servant wants to get his hands on the guy and choke him and say, pay what you owe. Like, if you're out 20 grand, you could be out of a house. Your kids could be on the street. I mean, that is a huge amount of money for most people. And Jesus is saying, it's not that the 20 grand is small. It's actually that you need to be most aware of the grace of Christ to you. You need to be most aware of the Lord's forgiveness when you're trying to deal with the big debts, the big wounds, the big mm. harms that you've experienced from another person. So I would say, regardless of what words you use on the forgiveness and reconciliation front, the first most practical thing you can ever possibly do when you are upset with somebody, feeling hurt, feeling there's relational brokenness, is you have to start in Matthew 18 with your own heart. You have to be able to say, Lord, the fact that I'm really hurt here is a profound opportunity to take on board once more just how deep the love of Christ is for me, how much his mercy has forgiven me until I am reminded, like, okay, I was really hurt that you did that thing to me, that you would betray me in that way okay, oh my goodness, that's just a tiny window of the betrayal I have done with you, oh Lord. Help me see that, because that's what we always lose track of. Now, that doesn't make reconciliation always easy or obvious, or here's the, the quick answer or quick fix, but reconciliation, if it's not driven by forgiveness flowing from the gospel, if it's not that, you know, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors mentality that says, okay, I've got to come to the Lord aware that I am owed nothing by him. That's what allows me to go out towards other people and begin to think practically about steps of reconciliation. Without that, you know, you're just moving deck tears on the Titanic. Mm. One of the things that keeps coming to my mind as you're talking about restoration is those like instances in which somebody might say it's not wise for you to be restored, whether it be like in an abusive relationship or right. something like that. Can we just talk about that just briefly? I know this is such a short conversation and we're flying over so many important topics, but are there instances where it might not be wise for a relationship to be restored? Sure. Let me answer that question on two fronts. I'll take a really serious one and, and a really sort of more, much more trivial one as a way of trying to capture the spectrum. As you heard, Alistair and I are moving into some hard stuff in this portion of our conversation. We are specifically going to be talking about abuse. I want to hop in here and offer you the opportunity to pause if needed. Pray. Or simply skip the next five minutes of this episode if this is a particularly tender topic for you, or if you have little ears nearby. As always, we want to encourage you to seek out other members of the body of Christ as you're processing this content. We want to remind you that no podcast is a replacement for the wisdom, counsel, and shepherding care of men and women in your local church body. And if you need further support, it has been so helpful for me personally to seek out professional counseling as I wade through various degrees of relational brokenness in my own life. This is tough stuff, y'all. You are not alone in this. Just a word of encouragement to exercise wisdom and discretion as you continue listening. Are there times when restoration is not going to be possible in this life? Yes, absolutely. As with so many things in scripture, you've got Jesus is laying down core central categories and then how exactly that gets fleshed out is going to look different in a thousand different situations. So so I, you you raised abuse, let's just take that. Let's take sexual abuse with a, with a child. I've certainly heard of situations where you've had, you know, 
I'm taking this eight-year-old child and it's important, you know, this stuff all comes out and it's important that eight-year-old like talks to this abuser and forgives them face to face and that we restore the relationship and whatever. And I, I would think that would just be highly foolish, at least in the vast majority of situations, given the way that abuse is a use of power. And there's so often a manipulative dynamic to it that is impossible to detect in any sort of short range of time. So I would say when you have, for example, an adult abuser and and a young child, I would not ask that child and that adult to ever be in the same room. Is it possible that someday, years down the road, you could have a situation where because of evidenced change in the abuser's life that has been really clearly visible and really obvious to everyone, an embrace of the consequences of their actions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, could it be possible that the child with appropriate outside awareness and perspective and support could have some sort of interaction where there could be forgiveness? Yeah, of course that's possible. Is it possible that an eight-year-old could genuinely forgive in in a moment? Is it possible? Yes, it's possible. Anything's possible. But I would just say there's overwhelming wisdom and justice and care for both parties that's go on the side of sexual abuse of a child. Let's put it this way. If reconciliation is going to occur, it's going to unfold over decades, not a month or a year. Uh, It's not going to be something that we're going to look for that child to have anything like it. And there are so many things that happen to us in childhood that you don't fully process until you're in your 20s or your 30s. And it would be silly to try to force some sort of premature conclusion. That doesn't mean that the child has to be held in some sort of, well, okay, you can't make any progress. Or I'm, I'm not saying that. I just mean there's a restoration and a reconciliation that should not be rushed. And so if you want to say, okay, this kid is eight. And so when they're 38, uh, we'll see how things are, are going. <laughs> as long as we're thinking on those sorts of timelines, then I really am committed to the idea that anything theoretically, can really be reconciled given enough time and with the right kinds of, of evidences all around. And I would probably say something similar. You know, you, you're the church treasurer and you're embezzling, or you're the, we're just not going to throw you back into that situation. That's not what reconciliation looks like. There's going to be a reconciliation that takes account of your temptations mm-hmm. and your track record and your your growth as a person. So on the other side, I'll just say I've had various conflicts uh, in my marriage with Lauren, we've experienced, you know, micro brokenness over the course of an evening. And I'll go out and I'll just take a walk. And sometimes I just, I walk and I pray. And a lot of times my prayer is saying like, Lord, I can tell I'm angry. I know my heart's not in the right place, but I'm not getting better on my own here. Just, I I need your help. Uh, Sometimes it's as simple as just looking up at the stars and being reminded, okay, the Lord's ability to see and what he has created and all his good and his power is so much beyond my little thing that I'm frustrated about right now. And, you know, sometimes it's just really helpful to say, God, you're bigger than me. Will you help me rest in that? Sometimes it's helpful to say, okay, for my heart to be in the right place to have this conversation, I actually need courage to speak up for the good of the relationship rather than I'm a conflict avoider. My wife is a delightfully straightforward person who will, you know, where you she'll tell you when there's a problem, whereas I tend to play my cards close to my chest. Like, Well, I don't know if I can say this. And of course, then things tend to fester and I bottle things up. And then when I am addressing them, it's unhelpfully late in the process. And so I've learned a lot from her. But uh, there are so many times I can point to where I would just say the Lord has helped us reconcile little things over the course of 20 minutes, you know, where I'll I'll come back to say, I'm sorry I spoke that way, or, hey, I should have said this earlier, and I'm sorry I didn't do that. And I'm talking decades is is a possible option. I'm talking minutes is a possible option. It always starts with your heart. And then you you think, not like, what is the rule for every reconciling situation, but simply, who is this person? And what's going to be the best way I can love them? That that Ephesians 4.29, like, what's going to give grace? What's going to build up? What's not going to be a corrupting word? What's going to be a word that that really seeks the benefit of the person I'm I'm talking to? And that's going to look the same person will reconcile differently with different people based on the person they're talking to and seeking to love. Mm. Are there any key components of that conversation? Obviously, you're saying start with yourself. Like there's a humility in that saying I'm acknowledging that I am not coming to the table like without fault. Are there any other kind of key components that we should take into consideration, even though those conversations are going to flesh themselves out differently based on the circumstance? Again, huge spectrum. Let's look at the end of the spectrum where where we're talking relational brokenness is a significant kind of descriptive phrase we'd use to describe the relationship. 
I mean, I would say anytime you're talking about a significantly broken relationship, A, you start with your own heart, and then B, you you recruit prayer. And you do that wisely, not in a gossipy way, where you're sort of just getting stuff off your chest and poisoning other people's mind or getting your side of the story in more of a again, it depends on who you're talking to and how much they're aware of the conflict in the relationship. But at the very least, just saying, hey, you know, I have to have a hard conversation with someone tomorrow. I'm not going to tell you who it is. I'm not going to tell you what it's about. I just, and I'm going to be really tempted to be self-righteous, or I'm going to be really tempted to be placating and pacifying, or I'm going to be really tempted to. And so, yeah, you start with your own heart being willing to forgive, and then you seek help from friends, or again, even in your own prayers, recognizing, what am I going to be most tempted to do wrong in this reconciliation effort? Am I going to be more fearful? Am I going to be more explosive? Uh, those would be sort of the most two obvious kind of ends of the spectrum. And so from there, after having said not just, am I ready to really genuinely pursue peace and desire good in the relationship rather than being stuck on wanting to exact vengeance or just self-protect and be like, to heck with this person. I don't ever want to see them again. I don't. This isn't worth the hassle. It's to say, how do I guard against my own natural temptations? And then as a general rule, relational conflict is really hard. So keep it as simple as you can. Don't plan out 27 steps ahead. Don't concoct, here's the way it has to go. Take, figure out what's the first next helpful step that I could probably take in this situation. So, you know, let, let, let's say you've got two friends who have been friends for a long time, but there's a perpetual cycle of of hurt between the two. It's amazingly difficult in those situations not to now read every interaction, even attempts at reconciliation through the lens of, well, how has this tended to go in the past? So I want to think, okay, what has this other person's experience of our conflict been like? How can I take that into account as best I can when I take some step toward them? So sometimes a step is just reestablishing friendly contact, right? Sometimes something's been so strained and awkward and it's like we, we're not really on speaking terms much. And sometimes the first step is just to be like, you know what? We're not even going to address the conflict. I'm going to send a text. I'm just going to like invite the person to this event that's coming up that I'm going to be there at anyway. I'm just going to take a step that says I care about you and I still want to be connected to you. And let's see how that goes. Let's see how they respond. And if there's something positive built through that, then maybe the next step is to say, hey, could we talk? I know things have been really hard of late for us and strained, and I'm not even sure what to do about it, but I would just love to see if we could brainstorm together. Again, anything you can do to say, can we get on the same side of a problem and push together where we both see and feel that there's mm. you know, a pattern of, of hardness here? Now, for other people, it's going to be the opposite. People are going to be like, why on earth are you inviting me to this thing when you're acting like it never happened? Like, we both know what's between us. We, how are we going to do anything positive until we've dealt with that thing that's a wedge between us? And so for others, your first step is going to be to say, hey, look, I know there's something between us. Can we talk? Or maybe it's, uh, you know what? I get totally lost when I try to talk to people and I freeze up and I freak out and I lose my words and I go blank and deer in the headlights. And I just need to write this person a thoughtful letter. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then holster it for 24 hours and pray over it and look at it again. And but but send it at some point, you know, and not just allow it to forever go through drafts or sit in my dresser for 10 years. And there's no magic principle that tells you: Do I start by reaching out, you know, just sort of in friendship, or do I start by addressing the issue between us, or or something else? And I love Ephesians 4:29 because it just gives so much flexibility of a real thoughtful analysis where you say, what's going to be the best way to move towards this person? And in the context of relational brokenness, it, it really is going to be, it's, it's going to call for even more wisdom than usual. And the recognition going in that you don't have control of the situation and the other person may not respond the way you hope. They may not be seeking reconciliation. You may have to be content to say, you know, that's sort of Romans 12, 18, as much as it's possible, live at peace with everyone. But that implies there's places where it's not possible. What does dinner time look like in your house? Is it a little chaotic and crazy like it is at mine? Let me tell you about Prep Dish and how they can help you simplify your evenings. You've probably heard us talk about Prep Dish in the past, and maybe you've thought, man, I just don't have time to meal prep. But let me tell you, with Prep Dish, meal prepping for the whole week honestly takes just about one hour with their super fast plan and about two hours for the gluten-free, paleo, and low-carb meal plans. If you need a change in how you handle dinner time at your house, you have got to try Prep Dish. You'll serve up delicious meals that your family will love, like green chili burgers, Caesar's salmon wraps, and apricot-glazed chicken thighs. Right now, the founder, Allison, is offering our listeners a free two-week trial to try it out. You can't beat that. 
Check out PrepDish.com forward slash journey for this great deal. Again, that's PrepDish.com forward slash journey for your first two weeks free. Biblically, like what is the value in reconciling with those with whom we are experiencing relational brokenness? You know, C.S. Lewis in his essay, uh, The Weight of Glory, um, one of the things I've always appreciated about that essay is he basically says it's actually in looking at the doctrines that are hardest for us to understand that we have the most likely areas of spiritual growth. I love that. It's just, he says basically, you know, if anything about the Bible that makes intuitive sense to us is great, but it's actually, we would expect that the Bible has something to say beyond our own stuff, it's going to be counterintuitive to us. So I would say in one sense, even if you never see any value to the relational reconciliation stuff in this life, you are living in an, well, so I'm with you. I hate relational conflict. It's not fun at all. And I suspect most people feel that way too. But there's something about placing your faith in Christ by doing something that you don't want to do is really hard and you know you're called to it and you don't see the value of it. There's an incredible glory in that kind of trust. Having said that, places where I at least say, you know, here's inklings you might get of what Christ is up to. For starters, I think, uh, well, maybe Ephesians 2 or 4 puts it as well as anywhere, that, that just love for the body, that love for breaking down walls, bringing together. If we have one Lord and one spirit, we're being drawn then together into one body and that the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you or your pain doesn't matter to me. And so I think in general, reconciliation is this little window on heaven. It's this little window on the unity of the body that we have through Christ. It's And it's, and it's a recognition that if Jesus loves this other person and I love Jesus, by definition, I, I need to be able to grow in loving this other person over here. I've, I've got to, how can I hate that which Christ loves? That, that then becomes an issue between me and my Lord, not just between me and another person. Now, I'm guilty there of not loving as Christ loves all the time, and, and I, uh, I'm speaking aspirationally. But then even beyond that, I think maybe this is an overstatement and I, I might want to walk this back after the podcast is over. And if so, I'll shoot you an email. You can put a disclaimer next to it when you <laughs> post it. But I mean, I would think that relational reconciliation has got to be the most vivid, visible evidence of the work of the gospel, period, end of story. And you can talk about personal transformation, you know, getting over a drug addiction or something like that, that, you know, may have had relational implications, but it's more of like, I needed to get rid of this thing in my life. And it wasn't so much a relational thing, although most of the literature will say, actually, it's more relational than you think. But even if you thought about it that way, you know, the, again, who you become on the far side of addiction and how that impacts your relationships and how it does, you know, play out. It just, there's no visibility of the gospel like relational restoration. It's just the most glorious evidence that Christ has gotten a hold of you and he's doing something in you. So, I mean, if you ever wanted to taste and see that the gospel is good and true, the ability to forgive, the ability to show grace, the ability to humbly repent, the desire for relationship that is actually good and real and intimate rather than my own comfort or you are impressed with me or I keep my secrets or I beat you until, you know, you go away and now I've won and I feel good about myself, you know, to go away from those evils and towards the good of, of relationship that values another person more than you value yourself. I, I don't know what's a better picture of the gospel to the world or to you. So I can't speak too highly of that. And if all that, you know, wow, the gospel is beautiful and love to taste it stuff. If that isn't feeling especially true, I am still going to go all in on you're still obeying. You're still doing something that is right and good and glorious. Mm. And, and that still is something of enormous value to your faith and your connection to Christ, even if you're not feeling and seeing uh, everything I just said. Mm, that is so helpful. I'm so blessed to have you as a member of my local church body. I know everybody's like, man, I just wish I went to Christ Redeemer Church right now because I need <laughs> Alistair's help. Right. <laughs> what is the role of the church in coming alongside others who are navigating various degrees of brokenness in their relationships? You know, um, that's, that is a really important question. Let me give the briefest set of thoughts I can on that, just because it's such a large topic, I would say, number one, the way you ask the question is actually counterintuitive to us often. 
the fact that there is a role and it is key and it is huge. Like just, just starting there is a massively important thing. We have to recognize that the church is actually here. This is part of its primary purpose in our lives is to help us with our relational brokenness. And that's between two people in the church. That's with people outside the church. So how does it do that? What does that look like? I think about Galatians 6 and restoring people caught in sin gently, you know, at the beginning of the chapter, but watching out that you're not dragged away into temptation yourself. And I think growing up, I had always heard, you know, know, but watch out lest you too be tempted. I think I thought of that as like, you know, if you're trying to help someone doing heroin, make sure that you don't also get sucked into heroin addiction, which is certainly a fair application. But if you look back a few verses into the end of Galatians 5, Paul is talking about the works of the flesh, and half of them are relational conflict kinds of languages, you know, divisions and rivalries and envy. And I think the the implication here is when you're dealing with someone who's angry, it's going to be tempting to get angry. Dealing with someone who's in despair, especially over a lost relationship, it's going to be really easy to despair with them or despair of them. Or And so this, the, the core idea that we're to come alongside each other and guard ourselves against temptation is to recognize, yeah, people's lives are messy. And it's going to be important that you as a helper coming in are full of hope in Christ and in some ways, you're actually providing a, a healthy perspective of hope to the person you're you're trying to come alongside. One thing that can be difficult to balance, and probably everyone will tend to fall off one side or the other, you'll tend to have people either who are going to say, when, when you hear about somebody's relational brokenness, you're either going to be the kind of person who comes and says, oh, you poor baby, they're so terrible. I hate that they did that to you. They're awful. You're great. You know, and it will be all... I shouldn't say it'll be all compassion. It'll be compassion mixed with, I want you to like me and I want to feel good about this. And so I just want to give you all affirmation. And that's actually, that's compassion getting poisoned. On the other side, you're going to, people are going to come in and say, well, if you would just do X, Y, and Z and you need to do that. And here's where you were wrong. And let me fix you and fix the relationship. And if you'll just listen to what I say. And again, that's, there's good ministry. That's helpful counsel and recognizes truth, but that goes beyond truth. And it just says, well, I will feel better about life if I fix you. And I will, I will get you off of my plate if I can just get you to go do the thing I know you need to do. So we want to have this mix of compassion and desire to, to help somebody grow in a hard situation. And I think that's a really difficult mix. So as, a, as, as church members, we want to have the attitude that the question began with, which is, I should be involved in the relational conflicts of the people around me, but I want to do that with a, an enormous amount of compassion that says, I do feel for you. Even if you've totally screwed up your own situation, I still want to have compassion for you, just like Jesus has compassion for us as we mess up our own lives. And I want to be somebody who does not affirm what is not good, and I don't want to be somebody who you know, just falls into the trap of assuming, because I've heard one side of the story, I now know everything there is to know. And I want to be somebody who does encourage that reconciliation and then walk with you and support you and pray with you. And man, when you crash and burn, when you try to write the letter and it doesn't go well, I weep with you and I say, okay, well, what what does the next step look like? And if things end up just kind of, okay, this person isn't willing or isn't able to pursue reconciliation, so you and I are going to just have to live with the unresolvedness, then I, I bear that burden with you. So obviously it can escalate to higher levels where you get you know, church elders involved and you go into even, you know, Matthew 18, excommunication kinds of things that that can come of broken relationships. And that's, but no matter how far down that road you're going, it's always, I want to restore relationship here. And even if at the end of the day, your church leadership says, look, you person, we are placing outside of our fellowship. You have so badly broken relationship and you've been so steadfastly refusing in your ability and your willingness to reconcile that we're saying you, you're actually rejecting Christ. You're rejecting the body. You're saying, I don't want to have the things it takes to live in the church, which Christ has called us into. And therefore, we are going to let you taste the consequences of that because we love you and we care about you. And we hope that the consequence of being placed outside of the church is actually a wake-up call to you and draws you back to humility and repentance. And you come back and we embrace each other. And there, even that is actually still done with a desire to see relationships restored. I feel like that's such a rarity and I hadn't ever been a 
part of a church who engaged in church discipline as intentionally um, as what you're describing until I was an adult. And that's such a great encapsulation of how it really is an act of mercy. Uh, And I really appreciate you saying that because I feel like that's so rarely fleshed out in front of us. And some of that is by God's grace. We don't often have the opportunity to experience that. But then I think some of it is also that it's a really rare thing to see that play out well in churches. Yeah. And and the more and the more that people are doing this on just a the more that it's assumed that relationships are just, yeah, we're going to work together and we're going to walk through stuff and it's going to be hard and messy and we're going to love and support and encourage and challenge each other through that. And that's just part of life in the church. The less often the stuff will escalate into more intensive levels of church discipline. And the more that when it is in that more intensive level, there's going to be a more natural structure around it of support and encouragement. And well, of course we're in life together. And I mean, again, I'm I'm describing something that I think is beautiful, but it's hard yeah. and it's time consuming and it's uncomfortable and it's just easier to live at the surface or to just cut people off all in one step. Oh, you did a bad thing. Boom. You're done. You're out. The good people stay in the church. The bad people go out as opposed to no church discipline. Uh, you know, it, it starts in this utterly informal relational peers context and we're all doing it with each other all the time. And it's going to be this lengthy process and always seeking the good of both the person who has sinned and the person who's been sinned against and not truncating the process by embracing either as the only person in the situation. Has the Holy Spirit brought someone to your mind as you're listening to this conversation? Or if you're like me, maybe your heart has been pricked with conviction of sin we want to encourage you to simply cry out to the Lord. Lord, will you help us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling we've been called to with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit? God, would you help us to be kind and compassionate, tenderhearted, forgiving others as God in Christ has forgiven us? In whatever degree of relational brokenness we're facing today, Lord, enable us to clothe ourselves with hearts of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Help us to bear with one another and forgive any complaint we may have against someone else. Help us to forgive others as you have forgiven us. Enable us by your grace to put on love, which is the bond of perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, knowing that this is what we were called to as members of one body. Grant us the grace to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together we may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. I have so many questions swirling around in my brain, and we are coming to a close in our conversation. But one of the things that came to my mind as you were talking is what it looks like for us to also embrace our limitations as we are coming alongside one another in ministry. And there's this temptation for me to want to categorize and to want to like premeditate what boundaries I'm going to set. But the more you're talking, Alistair, the more I'm realizing the impact of broken relationships, specifically as they happen within the context of the body of Christ, and how that really does impact all of us. Like when we are in friction with one another, we are impacted in some way. And so there's this incredibly communal responsibility, I think, for us to really take ownership of what it looks like for us to encourage and admonish one another to walk in the biblical commands, to love one another with brotherly affection, to outdo one another in showing honor. Hmm. And our individualistic mentality when we come to church on a Sunday morning just does not cooperate with that, like that communal experience that we are offered in Christ. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I do have a thought on that. It's very strong and it's, yes, you're dead on. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly the problem it is is we are so individualistic. And, and I mean, we with, I put myself at the center. I'm the chief of sinners. I think so individualistically, so instinctively. And I, I want to grow in that. I'm convicted of the theology that says the body of Christ is this glorious thing. We're all drawn into it. And I want to be excited about that together. And I want to see it as if I really am an eye or a hand or a fingernail or a toenail or whatever. And that connects me deeply to other people. And I, I've actually been working through a, a curriculum 
I think it's called Six Steps to Loving Your Church. It's by the uh, guys who did the Trellis and the Vine Project. And um, one of the opening question of the little curriculum is something like, what do you think about when you walk into church? And then the next question is, what do you think God thinks about when you walk into church? And it's been so profoundly helpful to reflect on what happens when I am getting together with people in the church and just recognizing the interconnectedness is real, whether mm-hmm. I feel it or not. And my individualistic instincts, even that prioritize my spiritual health in abstraction from the health of my body around me, this doesn't make any sense. It's bizarre. It's crazy. And, and, and yet it's so seductive to us. And we live in a culture that increasingly allows us to sit at the hub of our little digital, social, geographic, air-conditioned, whatever. It's easy to be cut off from other people. And it takes a lot of effort. And, and that's got to start with an incredible conviction that I really am connected to the people around me, and, and particularly in my local congregation. Mm-hmm. That's like one of the huge heartbeats of Journey Women is that we would step into this online space and just keep pointing people back to their local church context. And that's part of the reason why it's such a joy-filled experience for me to talk to you. You know, Alistair and I don't get to chat over coffee every week. But I mean, the impact that your ministry in our local body has, it impacts me, even though a lot of times that's a little bit less directly. So such a joy to get to have you. I know the listeners are wanting to grow in this area as I am. Do you have some practical steps for anyone who wants to begin to kind of uh, take further steps into engaging with relational brokenness for the glory of God? Uh, I probably have 90, so I'll try to I'll try to narrow it down a bit. Some things are probably going to be more echoes of things I've already said, but the, so the first is an echo, which is be excited for the possibilities inherent in relational brokenness for you knowing the Lord. And that's true. Again, regardless of how well it goes, grab the chance presented, even if it's simply to know the comfort of Christ in the face of something that is broken and will not change at all in this life with this other person. Because again, they they are completely out of, out of your control. So Treat it as an opportunity when you find yourself in a context with relational brokenness rather than uh, something that's wrong with you or something to be dreaded and avoided, et cetera. Second thought, again, just practical step. What's the next thing to do? I mean, it'd be interesting to do a sort of self-assessment, just like put yourself in the center of a blank white piece of paper and then just draw a circle around that and go, who are the people who are really close to me? And then draw a circle outside of that. Who are the people who are a little bit further away and, and you know, make concentric circles and then just, you know, underline where are the places where I would describe as relationally broken. Mm. And, you know, if you're, and if you're having any trouble, again, do the exercise with a friend or if you come with, if there's 18 people underlined, uh, okay, you know, you got to start somewhere. Don't try to do 18 things at once, but I would just say, literally every human being on the planet ought to be able to make a little chart for themselves and underline, if they underline at least one and say, here's my most broken relationship, even if it's doing pretty well, surely you can do something there to see that relationship get better. Third practical step, and again, I keep hammering on Ephesians 4.29 today, but it's it, it's just my, it's my favorite verse on relational wisdom in the whole Bible. So memorize that. So, so memorize that. Okay. So that's three. <laughs> so step four is, uh, is, is to just say, I want to craft a uniquely tailored plan for any broken relationship I'm getting into. It's not about, here are the things you always do when the relationship is broken in this way. Again, there can, there can be all kinds of good wisdom and patterns and structures. And I've hinted at least 50 of those, I'm sure, as we've talked here. But I would just say the there's a time and a place where you actually work on relational brokenness by giving space and hmm. keeping silent and just saying like, you know what? I'm not, I don't have to go there. It's to a man's glory to cover an offense. And there's going to be times where you say, I've, I'm going to have to confront this very directly, but recognizing even, even confronting, you can confront by asking a simple question. I had a, a situation in college where I was living with a bunch of guys and there was some real increasing strains in the relationship. And I realized that I was in my head, I was asking this question of like, why would you do that? And I realized I had the right question, but the wrong tone. The right tone is to say, why would you do that? And that actually pushes me to, rather than judge you from a distance, to engage you. And I went to mm. breakfast with a couple of the guys and said, look, guys, this is uncomfortable for me, but let me let me just ask, like, what, how are you guys thinking about this? Here, here's why it's hard for me. What are, you, what are you thinking? I wasn't confronting them per se. I just wanted to have a conversation. It was extremely helpful. Didn't resolve everything. but So even just recognizing when you think about, oh, no, it's broken and it's bad and whatever, oftentimes there are smaller steps than you think 
that'll be wise and helpful in that context. And being having the courage to say, I'm going to move toward rather than run away. Mm, super helpful. And, you know, I always classify a good Journey Women episode as one that I have to walk out of this little closet and, like, do a lot of things. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> or get on my floor and weep. And I probably will have to do both of those. So you grew up in a ministry family. Like, your dad was involved in ministry. Your mom's involved in ministry. You're engaged actively, like, professionally in ministry. What are three of your simple joys in ministry? Yeah. You know, I'll give the one big one first. I wrote an article a couple of years ago called Treasuring Others. And again, I don't I do not live here in the way I would like to. And it's actually helpful to be asked the question and reminded of this, but there's a joy in recognizing that every little bit of ministry I do that has even the slightest little bit of impact, you know, even just a cup of cold water offered in, in the name of Christ, it has a literally eternal impact because it has some sort of shaping impact on that other person who is an eternal soul. And that idea that you're investing in heavenly treasure and that your heavenly treasure it's not just like, oh, I'll get coins in heaven when I get there because I was nice to this guy. It's like, I actually will be delighting in the impact of my particular conversation today with this person a million, million years from now because they will be able to particularly know Christ in a way that that's unique to them. Their, their story of the glory of Christ will be different than every other story in heaven, and I will see it and rejoice in it, not just because it's beautiful, but even because the Lord permitted me to have impact on them in that way. I, I They are my heavenly treasure because Christ is my heavenly treasure, and he treasures them. And he's it's just like that idea of treasuring others and seeing them as my heavenly treasure has been super, super exciting and encouraging and thrilling to me in ministry. Two others, oh, much more briefly, I love it when the gospel sounds surprising to someone. I love when you have a conversation and, and you can just watch them go, oh, I didn't think about it that way before. That is such a sweet moment that I love. Yeah. And then lastly, I think the moments in ministry when uh, yet again, the burden falls off of my shoulders and I'm reminded that it's not up to me to to fix things. I'm not the spirit and that it's his kingdom, his ministry, his love. And just to be able to relinquish yet again, the obligation and burden and franticness of trying to make things work is is a great joyful freedom. Ah, clearly the Lord has used you to impact my ministry specifically. I really love your book, by the way. I will link to it in the show notes so everybody can check it out. It really has. Thanks. Alistair, I feel like I've read a lot of things on emotions as of late, and it has by far been the most helpful thing that I've read, just helping me develop a theology of emotions. So thank you for writing that. You've had an impact on me. I would love to hear who's had the greatest impact on the way that you walk alongside others in ministry. There are three answers to that, and I'll, and I'll work backwards chronologically. My organization, I get to lead the organization that shaped me as a person unbelievably. CCEF has just had the, this unbelievable impact on the way I pray, the way I think, the way I talk to people, the way I understand my life and relationship to the Lord. I mean, it just, I, I literally am beyond the extent of my own life in debt to this organization. And it, and it is my privilege to get to pour out my life for it. Mm. Backing up before I got to CCF, I was with the Navigators for six six years, college, and then a couple of years on staff after that. And again, it had such a profound impact on teaching me my relationship with scripture my individual personal relationship with scripture really began through the navigators. My navs leader, Craig Parker, and the guy who took me under his wing, a guy named Dan Stulak, just, I'm enormously indebted. But then probably the ultimate foundation, I would just say it was my parents. I had amazing parents who raised me uh, and actually were influenced by the development of CCF themselves. And I just saw, I saw what grace-filled, heart-centered, taking you seriously as a sinner, but but loving you no matter what you did, I saw what that looked like in action. And I realize now just how unbelievable of a privilege it was. Oh, uh, well, I am rooting for maybe you having your mom on Journey Women one day because she seems like a pretty cool lady. <laughs> so that's really, really fantastic. And I'm just so grateful to have been the recipient of some of what's trickled down into your life as a result of their ministries uh, in this conversation today. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on and for all the impact that your ministry is having on our community. I just absolutely love the mutual flow back and forth of everything you're talking about.
We pray this conversation with Alistair is a help to you as you humbly seek relational restoration in your own life. Again, we encourage you to continue processing this conversation with men and women in your local context. If you need some help doing that, you can find show notes and discussion questions on our website at journeywomenpodcast.com. Hey, if you're enjoying this series of the podcast, we would love it if you would take a few minutes to leave Journey Women a rating or review on iTunes. Doing so really does help get the podcast into the hands of other women who might find it a helpful resource as they continue to navigate the seasons and challenges they face on their journeys to glorify God. Also, if you want to catch us throughout the week, you can find us on socials at Journey Women Podcast. Today's episode was mixed and produced by Chad Michael Snavely and the team at Sound On, Sound Off. We are so grateful for them and for you. It's a joy to get to journey alongside you guys. Can't wait to see you here next Monday. Have a great week. Mm